to celebrate the end of the decade. We bring you the ghost of diffusion past in the form of the show from 26 December 2000. This show from 10 years ago was streamed from 2SCR at 20 kilobits per second, as recommended by Microsoft for FM radio in 2000. So enjoy the slightly low resolution, authentic sounds of Christmas in 2000 from what was the Discovery Show before our cease and desist letter. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Hello and welcome to Discovery, 2SER's National Science Radio Show, where we kick back, relax and discuss the weird, wacky and wonderful world of science. I'm Adam Mark. On this edition, we'll hear the real truth about the great Aussie beer gut, Scottish potatoes that glow in the dark, how penguins waddle and a whole lot more. But first up, here's the news with Nick Perkins. A team of researchers from the University of Connecticut believe they have stumbled across a long life gene. Their study, which appeared in the December 15th issue of Science magazine, reported that mutations in a certain metabolism-related gene in the fruit fly can double the fly's lifespan. The long life gene has been affectionately named the I'm Not Dead Yet gene, or INDY, INDY for short. The gene mutation appears to work by restricting calorie absorption on a cellular level, or in effect by putting the cells on a diet. This supports previous findings that a severe calorie-restricted diet in mice can extend their life by up to 50%. Interestingly, the fruit flies with the mutated long-life gene retained much of their physical prowess throughout their lives, flying around actively and even reproducing right throughout their lifespan. This suggests that indie gene mutations may allow not only a longer life, but a healthy one as well. And since the same long-life gene exists in humans, the Indie Gene Team believe that it may one day be possible to develop a pill that would both extend our lives and control our weight. A doubled lifespan for us humans would be about 150 years, so as long as the retirement age is kept at 60, our quality of life could soar dramatically. There was also some comfort this week for all those who received a mobile phone for Christmas. A study of 891 people who used cell phones for an average of less than three years found no evidence the devices caused brain cancer. The study involved retrospective phone use questionnaires given to 469 people with brain cancer and 422 people who were cancer-free. The amount and duration of cell phone use were not related to an increased risk of brain cancer, except for one rare type of brain cancer, which the researchers said was not statistically significant. But be warned, Professor Henry Lye of the University of Washington, whose previous animal research did link cellular phone signals with cell damage in rat brains, called the new study very preliminary and inconclusive. And since most solid tumours take 10 to 15 years to develop, the three-year duration of the study was probably too short to see an effect. 
New evidence from Washington State provides the strongest support yet that a giant form of primate commonly known as Bigfoot actually exists and is roaming in remote wilderness areas. Most stories of the ape-like creature have in the past been dismissed as mistaken identities or hoaxes. But the new evidence comes in the form of a large imprint of a hairy backside of a primate believed to be more than 2.5 metres tall. The Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, which included trained scientists, sponsored a 13-person expedition in southern Washington state to find the creature. The team set out food, spread pheromones, and played recordings believed to be the calls of other Bigfoots. The investigators returned one morning to find an impression in the mud which they believed was made as the creature sat down and ate the bait. Unfortunately, no outside scientist has yet taken up the invitation to examine the cast of the imprint to objectively determine whether this hairy bum was indeed Bigfoot's. Who knows, if the evidence turns out to be fair dinkum, Bigfoot may one day be known as Big Bum. With the festive season upon us, many people will be waking up not only with hangovers, but also the slight hint of beer bellies. Nick Perkins will now dispel various myths and explore the true facts about the great Aussie beer gut. Every Aussie pub has its fair share of beer guts, but unfortunately for the aesthetes amongst us, the soaring temperatures of the silly season ensure that many beer guts will venture out from the pubs in various states of undress to proclaim their increasing presence to the world. So what is a beer gut? Is it a peculiarly male phenomenon? Are they dangerous to our health? And how do we get rid of the blessed things? Anyone who has actually touched a beer gut is often amazed by the solidness of the protrusion. But contrary to popular myth, the beer gut is not the result of strengthened abdominal muscle due to the high volume of beer in the stomach. Nor is it caused by some special type of fat deposit, but is due to the build-up of normal visceral fat, or adipose tissue, underneath the abdominal wall. Although the abdominal wall, which is muscle, is what you feel on the outside, the protrusion is caused by the fat that lies underneath. The accumulation of fat around the abdomen, rather than more evenly around the body, is an unfortunate byproduct of male physiology. Women, on the other hand, usually put on their extra kilograms around the hips. When anyone puts on weight, though, it's because we're consuming more calories than we're burning off in physical activity. It actually doesn't matter whether the cause of the weight gain is too much beer, cream buns or Christmas pudding. The end result is the same, a pot belly. Booze is certainly high in calories, though. Pure alcohol contains 7 calories per gram, and 98% of what we drink is absorbed by the body. Virtually no alcohol escapes in the breath or through urine. That means that when we drink a standard 100ml glass of wine, we're adding about 70 calories to our daily intake. A standard 230ml midi of lager, on the other hand, adds a whopping 90 calories to our intake. And when you consider how much more beer is usually drunk than wine, it's easy to see how the concept of beer belly has emerged. Interestingly though, because alcohol is essentially a toxin which the body tries to eliminate as quickly as possible, the calories from alcohol itself aren't usually converted into fat. The body prioritises their use as its fuel and burns them off first, leaving the calories from your assorted foods and soft drinks to be dealt with later. Strictly speaking then, alcohol isn't fattening, but if it contributes to an overall positive energy balance, then you will put on weight. And unfortunately when we drink, we usually get hungry. We start to crave high-fat foods like peanuts and chips, or that chicken gyros with a lot. One study has shown that when we drink before we eat, we usually eat more calories, eat at a faster rate, eat for longer, and take more time to feel satisfied. 
But what are the consequences of a beer gut? Aesthetics aside, a gut should be avoided because it's unhealthy. One study by a German expert on metabolism concluded dangers begin to emerge in men whose waistlines measure more than 94 centimetres, and they become really risky at a girth of 102 centimetres. Men with large guts are at increased risk of developing diabetes, heart disease, strokes, and perhaps even cancer. The abdominal fat of beer guts is very mobile and is released into the bloodstream readily in response to stimuli such as stress, thus raising cholesterol levels. Around the hips, however, where women usually put on any extra padding, the fat is relatively safely stored and has far less effect on the body. The bad news for men, then, is the clear evidence that people with pot-bellied or apple-shaped bodies are more prone to associated health risks than those with pear-shaped forms. Researchers are still trying to understand why abdominal fat is so dangerous, but a recent breakthrough by British scientists may help us find out. A team working at London's National Institute for Medical Research has bred rats with beer bellies and expect they may reveal why middle-aged men accumulate fat around the middle in the first place and why there's a difference between men and women. The rats have been dubbed SLOBs or slobs, severe late-onset obesity, and they are the first test animal with true middle-aged spread. The team of researchers has stumbled on the fact that there is a genetic component to the beer gut, and although they've not yet proved that theirs is the beer gut gene, it's likely it will turn out to be one of several genes influencing obesity. And who knows, perhaps the beer gut gene will turn out to be particularly prevalent in the white Aussie male. So how can you avoid the paunch or lose one you've already got? Firstly, modify your overall diet. Eat more high-carbohydrate foods and less high-fat foods. As for alcohol, stick to the medically recommended limit of 21 standard drinks a week for men. That's three minis of beer a day. Avoid drinking before eating and don't drink and snack. But don't be tempted to make room for alcohol by eliminating foods with significant nutritional value from your diet, such as fruit and vegetables. As for exercise, every little bit helps. Scientists have found that even simply standing on your feet and fidgeting a lot could be enough to burn off almost 700 calories a day. But a minimum of 30 minutes aerobic exercise daily is the best way to keep your weight down. Doing abdominal curls will not get rid of your gut, as the infomercials tell you they will. But maintaining strength in your abdomen will keep the muscle tight to your body as the fat is slowly lost through exercise. This is particularly important if your gut's been building up over several years and permanent stretching of the abdominal wall muscle has occurred. But by all means, enjoy a few hours this New Year's Eve. And before you go making those ridiculous resolutions, here's a little ode to the drink. There stands the glass that will ease all my pain. the portly Nick Perkins and the John Spencer Blues Explosion with There Stands the Glass. Still to come, Anthropomorphism, Glowing Potatoes, Penguin Gate, Mexican Santas and a hell lot more. 
This is Michael Archer, director of the Australian Museum, titillated about everything fascinating in the world. And if you want to blow your brain just like I've blown mine, listen to the Discovery Channel. Take two. This is Michael Archer, director of the Australian Museum and fascinated by everything biological and geological in our world. If you want to blow your mind like I blow mine every day in this place, listen to Discover. Take three. This is Michael Archer, director of the Australian Museum. Fascinated by everything in the world around me. Every day my mind is blown out, my left and my right ear, and I'm having fun. And if you want to enjoy the world like I do, listen to Discovery. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on www.diffusionradio.com. When humans look at animals, we automatically begin to attribute human characteristics to them. This is called anthropomorphism and can be fascinating to study all on its own. Lachlan Watmore investigates. For the Discovery Halloween special, I spoke of anthropomorphization, which is the attributing of human characteristics to non-human animals. I'd like to briefly expand on the subject, because I've always held that human beings are the most vain creatures to have walked the earth. Now, that's not actually saying much, because few animals are self-aware and are therefore not even capable of being vain. However, I can perceive a growing need for humans to understand that, while many non-human animals share with us similar needs, such as nutrition and the means to reproduce, all non-humans, even the great apes, live very different lives to us, and that to understand their behaviour, we should avoid drawing parallels to our own. Last century, Rudyard Kipling wrote a marvellous collection of short stories with a common theme, and packaged them into a volume which was called The Jungle Book. It explored fictitious relationships between animals and humans and is an excellent example of our human nature being attuned to both the differences and similarities between us and them. One of my favourite Jungle Book stories is that of Ricky Tiki Tafi, the fearless mongoose who battled the evil cobra's nag and his wife Nagina. Mongooses are small mammals native to Asia, described by Kipling as rather like a little cat with its fur and its tail, but quite like a weasel with its head and its habits. Mongooses are fast movers and take advantage of the cobra's relatively slow striking speed to get in behind the big snake and go for its head or neck. The sight of a little cat-like mammal taking on a large venomous cobra up to four times its length prompted Kipling to clearly illustrate Ricky Tiki as the hero and Nag and Nagina as the villains. When Ricky Tiki smashes Nagina's eggs and kills all her unborn babies, he is performing the necessary heroic task of preventing these nasty, evil little snakes from entering the world. He is not guilty of infanticide. Now, in the real world, a mongoose will raid a cobra nest and eat her unborn young, fighting her to get in or out of the nest if necessary. However, neither the mongoose nor the cobra are evil or guilty. The morality of the story didn't come from observing the behaviour of the animals themselves. It came from Kipling's very human interpretation of his observations, filtered through his culture, his personality, his religion, etc. However, none of the Jungle Book stories juxtapose both anthropomorphization and a genuine attempt to describe real animal behaviour, as well as the haunting, beautifully written Mowgli's Brothers. A toddling infant human, a man's cub, is taken in by a family of wolves. The boy grows up, and as he does, the differences between him and his four-legged brothers becomes more and more apparent. In an effort to enforce his will on the pack, he brings a fire pot to a pack meeting and takes advantage of the wolves' natural fear of fire by lighting a dead branch and beating them with it. 
the wolves are fascinating characters because while Kipling has written many human nobilities into them, he also makes it clear that the wolves follow their instincts. These instincts are enshrined as the law of the jungle and to include and include fighting for mates, making room for the leader of the pack during hunting and adhering to the social hierarchy of the pack. Now, as most of us know, wolf packs don't have laws, at least not written ones. However, Kipling takes pains to point out that the law of the jungle is not the law of humans and that non-human creatures follow patterns of behaviour that, repeated often enough, a human observer might describe as a law for want of a better term. If you haven't read a book by Richard Dawkins called The Blind Watchmaker, do so. It's not only an excellent treatise on evolutionary theory, it also addresses the question of human arrogance when we try to describe the natural world. Dawkins writes about the discovery of echolocation in bats, or the ability of bats to use high-frequency sounds as sonar in order to navigate. Because most bat sounds are pitched so high we can't hear them, echolocation wasn't uncovered until 1940, when the American zoologist Robert Griffin reported his findings to a distinguished seminar of his peers. In 1940, sonar and radar were still regarded as a triumph of human engineering, and the idea that bats could have perfected such an ingenious system millions of years before us was regarded as not just incredible, but morally repugnant. Dawkins counters this brilliantly by saying... I can imagine some uh, take two. I can imagine some other world in which a conference of learned and totally blind bat-like creatures is flabbergasted to be told of animals called humans that are actually capable of using the newly discovered inaudible rays called light, still the subject of top secret military development for finding their way about. These otherwise humble humans are almost totally deaf. Well, they can hear after a fashion and even after a few ponderously slow, deep, drawling growls. But they only use these sounds for rudimentary purposes like communicating with each other. They don't seem capable of using them to, de to detect even the most massive objects. They have instead highly specialised organs called eyes for exploiting light rays. The sun is the main source of light rays and humans, remarkably, manage to exploit the complex echoes that bounce off objects when light rays from the sun hit them. They have an ingenious device called a lens whose shape appears to be mathematically calculated so that it bends these silent rays in such a way that there is an exact one-to-one -one mapping between objects in the world and an image on a sheet of cells called the retina. These retinal cells are capable, in some mysterious way, of rendering the light audible, one might say, and they, relax their, they relay their information to the brain. Our bat mathematicians have shown that it is theoretically possible, by doing the right, highly complex calculations, to navigate safely through the world using these light rays, just as effectively as one can, in the ordinary way, use ultrasound, in some respects even more effectively. But who would have thought that a humble human could do these calculations? That was Lachlan Watmore and the beast within us all. You're listening to Community Radio's National Science Show, Discovery, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio satellite, ComradeSat. Still to come, Gina with the headlines from the Freudian Times.
飯なんだよ女子飯なんだよ女子飯なんだよ女子飯なんだよ女子飯の授業の時ニヤニヤしてんの And now Gina Satori with the obligatory Christmas weird stuff. Well, this is the time of year when the Discovery team traditionally suffers from a short attention span and advanced laziness and searches for strange morsels to tempt its jaded editorial palate. So finally, some reasonably seasonal stories from the Fortean Times. Not the Freudian Times, just because I'm a psychologist. Everyone pigeonholes me, it's so sad. The Journal of the Strange Phenomena. Their online edition helpfully provides sources for weird stuff in the mainstream media. So thanks, Fortean guys. And here are some things which caught my attention. From the Times, first of all, an unusually frivolous piece. Scottish scientists have pioneered the world's first intelligent super potato. It glows green when it needs watering. Researchers at Edinburgh University have produced a pr- prototype of the new potato by adding a jellyfish gene to the vegetable. The potato plant's foliage emits a green glow when viewed f- through a special handheld device if it is in need of water. Scientists are now searching for sites to begin field tests, as it were, on the genetically modified vegetable before it can go into commercial production. Professor Tony Trowavis, I think that's how you say his name, who is leading the research at Edinburgh University's Institute of Cell and Molecular Biology, said that the new technology will make food production more efficient and cost effective. The best placed organism that can tell you what is happening in terms of environmental insults, like dehydration and mineral depletion, is, in the, plant, is the plant itself, he said. It's been shown that if potato crops do not get enough water, the harvest can be reduced by up to two thirds. Professor Trewavis and his team have been working on the £250,000 project for almost five years. He said that the research could also be applied to root vegetables such as carrots, parsnips, and turnips. The technology would allow farmers to save water, which the professor predicts will become the most expensive agricultural commodity, and hopefully even、uh, reduce the price of potatoes to the consumer, although I would have thought they were already reasonably cheap. Okay, another one. The BBC reports in a recent study into why penguins waddle. The short answer, of course, is because they have short legs. However, waddling is the most efficient way for them to move. And conserving energy is vitally important for an animal that may have to walk more than 100 kilometres across the freezing Antarctic ice to find open water in which to swim and fish. Researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, US, have performed their experiments on emperor penguins at the San Diego SeaWorld Park. Five birds were encouraged to waddle across a special platform that measured the side to side and fore and aft forces they exerted as they walked. The vertical forces supporting the animal's weights were also recorded. From this, the scientists were able to show that although penguins are inefficient walkers, to put it mildly, the birds would, face, would waste far more energy if they did not waddle, given their short legs and big feet.
certain Discovery team members can sympathise. But their apparent awkwardness on land is more than compensated for by their elegance in the water. In fact, penguins are rare among birds in that they stand upright, and that's probably so they have better control of heat when they insulate their eggs, because penguins put their eggs on their feet. But it also means that they're built better when they swim. Uh, they become actually much more hydrodynamically efficient underwater by putting the legs at the back. And in fact, they're arguably the best swimmers for their size that there are. The Barclay team justified this piece of research by saying that their work could have practical benefits. The knowledge gained from penguins provides novel insight into the gait mechanics of humans with increased lateral movements, i.e. humans who waddle, such as in pregnant women and or obese individuals. The researchers claim that the information may lead to improved understanding, evaluation and treatment of individuals with gait disabilities. Finally, finally, a piece uh, also from the BBC which has no science relation but I just liked. The spirit of Scrooge is alive and well in Mexico. Santa Claus has been banned from the streets of the city of Monterey. The city authorities have threatened to prosecute anyone walking the streets and dressed up in a red and white furry suit and a long beard. The council's commercial director, Rodolfo Villarreal, has said that anyone dressed in the familiar Santa colours and carrying a sack would be prosecuted and their sleigh and presents confiscated. Although this seems harsh, there is actually a reason for it. Uh, many illegal uh, traders use the Santa costume to get trade from people who are wandering the streets feeling festive and they're actually taking business away from legitimate traders. So harsh but reasonably fair, I think. Thanks for that, Gina. And that brings us to Discovery's last show of the 20th century, and therefore of the millennium. That's for the calendric pedants amongst us. If you'd like to contact us here at Discovery, you can reach us via email at diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Contributing to the program were Nick Perkins, Lachlan Watmore and Gina Satori. Discovery has been produced by Lachlan Watmore in the studios of 2SER Sydney with technical support by Ian Wolfe. Discovery is broadcast nationally via ComradeSat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Adam Mark. Join us for more science next week on Discovery. <laughs>